0: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today, a chance for you to ask questions of 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. We'll be talking about electric boat being named prime contractor for a new fleet of submarines and what that might mean for jobs in his district. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. At where we live, we're also joined today by the cameras of CTN, the Connecticut Network. Uh, Representative Joe Courtney, welcome back to our program. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation, John. Good to be back. We will be talking submarines in just a little bit, and there's a lot of other issues, of course, in your district to get to, but we really want to start with the heroin epidemic that has has taken root uh, around Connecticut. Certainly, it's all over the Northeast and and across New England. But it seems as though, from the stories we've heard, your district has been hit especially hard. Before we get into some specific policy stuff, maybe you can tell us what you've been seeing as you've been talking to constituents recently. What's happening with heroin in the 2nd District?
1: Well, um, you know, as you correctly note, um, in, in 2016, uh, which was on the heels of a pretty horrific year in 2015, there, there really has been this pretty scary um, spike in uh, emergency room admissions at hospitals like Lawrence Memorial, um, and the, um, you know, heroic efforts that the staff there has done, but also, you know, law enforcement who are now becoming very proficient at uh, using Narcan, um, has thankfully saved a number of lives, but, uh, but unfortunately in some instances they, they haven't. And, um, the, um, You know, there's a lot of things that are coming together that are national trends. Uh, Again, there were 28,000 lives lost in 2014, according to the CDC, which is the last sort of annual statistics um, that we have. We know 2015's numbers Sadly, are going to be higher, and again, we're off to a terrible start in in twenty sixteen. So, and I just want to jump in and yeah. say
0: twenty eight thousand, and that that gets us to near car crashes, that gets us to near Absolutely. gun deaths. I mean, that's in the same ballpark as things that have killed an awful lot of Americans for for a long period of time, and this is a bad trend we're seeing.
1: It is, and I mean, it's actually they're starting to make some um, data that shows that it's actually affecting life expectancy in this country, which is you know that's about as. Um, you know, chilling uh, uh, a data point that you could ever get. So, um, you know, I think it. The good news is, is that you know, in Eastern Connecticut, there's been an incredible sort of grassroots effort by folks to to really come together and and really look at all aspects of this problem. There, you know, part of it's law enforcement and the. Um, uh, police departments, particularly in New London County um, and, and southeastern Connecticut, have created a, a regional task force where they literally start every day with a, a sort of crosstown briefing in terms of um, activity that's going on out in the streets there. And if you follow the news down there um, in, in the you know police. Log. I mean, you actually see they've made some pretty significant um, arrests of, of high volume dealers. Which, uh, again, I think nobody has any sympathy for for folks who are exploiting this situation. The the other thing, though, that's interesting with law enforcement, as far as uh, you know, many of the uh, cases that they see coming through, you know, their police stations, um, you know, they are very loud and clear that you can't arrest your way out of this problem. Um, the the um, you know pathway that people find themselves addicted to to heroin um you know really uh has to be viewed in in many respects as a public health um challenge as opposed to just a, a you know criminal um uh, issue and uh, and again the, the 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 leadership of the police uh is it's quite striking to me um you know how um open and and strong they are about that. Families are, are coming out and talking about this. Uh, you know, again, this is something that I think, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, heroin addiction was something that was really in the the shadows and something that people found, um, you know, to be embarrassing or, or something they didn't want to talk about. But people are coming forward. Healthcare providers, um, we, we had a meeting in Norwich about the fact that um, one of the largest uh, primary care systems, uh, United Community and Family Services are now uh, totally uh, re-examining their um, system and protocols for prescribing opioid painkillers and they've actually reduced uh, the numbers in terms of what's uh, going through their pharmacy system and um, so there's there's a lot that's you know happening there that I think is, is quite impressive, encouraging school systems are really uh, I think ramping up prevention and education programs in the schools and uh, again not that you're seeing opioid addiction happening at the high school level, but frankly, kids who... uh, show a, a proclivity towards using alcohol or, or marijuana at a young age, I mean, the, the numbers are pretty clear that, you know, that's the, the population that later on becomes much more at risk. So so there's a lot that's happening. But frankly, this is a national issue that I think really should be put on par with a, a, a natural disaster or uh, some type of public health emergency. And unfortunately, my colleagues in Congress have not been as swift and and responsive to, to what I think is just so obvious to, to so many people in this country well, that I, yeah. it
0: needs that help. Well, I, I want to get to some of what you think the federal government can do, and I know that the, the president has been outspoken about this, but but you know, taking your district, for example, as a national trend, it is happening, but we, we wonder why we've seen so many cases in your part of the world. Um, I guess one question is, What do you know about the uh, increase, seemingly, in eastern Connecticut versus some other parts of the state? Secondly, what do we know about the pathways that drugs have carried? I mean, Many, many years ago, when, um, when the town of Willimantic made the front page of the Hartford Current as heroin town, something that was kind of devastating for that community, but it was dealing with some real problems, part of the story was that this was a, uh, this was a pipeline. This was part of a right. route in which drugs were carried. And so, so heroin made its way to Willimantic, and it wouldn't make its way to other other places. Do we see some sort of a pathway that that shows us why we would be having so many drug deaths and so many overdoses in and around this 95 corridor and up through eastern Connecticut?
1: So, I mean, actually, if you talk to the folks at the Office of Chief Medical Examiner who looked at the 2015 numbers, which, again, showed about a 20% increase in Connecticut, they they actually do um, indicate that it really is pretty much spread across the state. So I I feel like, to some degree, we can go a little overboard in terms of just saying that this is a 395 corridor issue. Having said that, um, you know, if you look around the region, uh, New Hampshire has the highest per capita um, numbers in terms of overdoses. I mean, it became an issue in the primary uh, for people running for president. Um, you know, Cape Cod was the subject of an HBO um, documentary, which is a pretty hard film to watch. Uh, but the fact is, is that um, so, you know, there, there's just no question that sort of uh, strip of of uh, from sort of, you know, Long Island Sound all the way north um, is, is a place that we're We're seeing a lot of um activity out there, I mean, I think what I think is a lot of folks have you know identified as is why we're seeing such extreme incidents is that the heroin that is starting that's out there on the street is laced with fentanyl, which is a cheap way to sort of make more money um if you're you're selling this stuff, and the combination is incredibly toxic and um and that's uh why I think you're you're seeing low-priced heroin on the street, Uh, you know, the reports that we get back is, uh, and I was at the Wyndham Chamber of Commerce the other day, is as low as $3.50 a hit. So if you're somebody who's, you know, got um, an addiction because of a painkiller use that may have started from a relatively benign incident, you know, like a a sports injury or, you know, a car accident or, uh, (laughs) excuse me, some type of surgery, and you're, you're at a place where you're, you're, you you feel you need that to to deal with pain issues uh you know, three dollars and fifty cents is a way of of satisfying that craving. Um, is is almost impossible to uh, to avoid as a temptation.
0: Well, you you mentioned the one organization uh, in your part of the state that that's working to change its opioid prescription patterns. This is something that I know an awful lot of hospitals have been taking on themselves and other health clinics. It's something that's put, been talked about at the federal level. What do you want to see? I mean, is this something that needs to be solved at the federal level, or is this a state by state or a region by region issue where we literally just First, change the way in which we prescribe opioids so that we just don't have so many people getting addicted in the first place.
1: So, one of the I think you know effective tools that are out there is the prescription monitoring uh, program. There, where um, again, when people are prescribed uh, opioid um, uh, prescriptions, that gets entered into a system. Connecticut has made it mandatory for a couple of years, and the folks in Hartford deserve credit for for moving ahead there. But what you do here. Uh, from uh, physicians out there, is that uh, if somebody's you know coming in from Rhode Island or um, you know another part of the country, uh, you know you you really sort of are back into the void. And the um, so one of the proposals that uh, is out there that the president is pushing is a national um, prescription monitoring program, so that uh, you know if you're a, a primary care doc. Uh, in Hartford or Norwich, and someone comes in uh, who's in pain and is comes from another part of the the, the country, that you can actually not just you can retrieve th- that information. Um, you know, that's a I think a pretty nuts and bolts kind of proposal that I think um, you know is is should be easy. I, I think for for the country to to embrace. You know, the other is just we've got to sort of get into the the fundamental question about protocols for for painkillers. Um, you know, this became um, a criteria for hospitals to get their certification that they uh, are addressing pain mm-hmm. as a patient uh, issue uh, before they, they leave the doors. And I mean, this is relatively recent, and, and I have heard that overwhelmingly is that, you know, people feel sort of trapped that um, if they don't prescribe and, – and it's such a subjective sort of, um, you know, condition to, to, to respond to that you're, you're going to put yourself at risk in terms of licensing and certification – so um, the Community Addiction and Recovery Act, CARA, which passed in the Senate, and, you know, was a good, I think, um, unfunded, but, you know, good faith effort to try and at least deal with some of the reform issues uh, surrounding this issue, this problem, um, actually is is calling for a, a whole sort of new look at protocols. And, and, it, and it brings in aspects of the the federal government that directly delivers uh, health care, whether it's the VA, military health care system. Uh, but also um you know FDA, HHS and, and others. And and I, I think, you know, that conversation and that process really has to happen. What um I think the the, the more um Advanced thinkers are, or, or people looking at this problem, is is that you know our system really doesn't get to the. So if you have a knee injury mm-hmm. and you, you're complaining about pain, I mean, an opioid, particularly in, in the immediate aftermath of a surgery, it is totally appropriate and and for relatively you know brief uh, periods of time. But at the end of the day, if you want to eliminate pain for in, in the wake of, of a, an event like that, you've really got to go to the knee, not not to the brain, which is where opioid uh, really aim their therapy in terms of dealing with pain. And, and you know, that kind of takes a, a, a more holistic, I guess you'd say, uh, response in terms of uh, healthcare and how we deal with pain but, as an issue.
0: But but how much of it do you think needs to be, I mean, there's sort of carrots and sticks in the way that you change behavior. I mean, one thing would be to to pass laws that would say you just have to prescribe differently, like you can't prescribe more than seven days worth of a certain opioid unless it's certain – and this is the sorts of things that are being talked about uh, – Then there are other ways in which we just say, let's educate more doctors. Let's educate more patients. Let's just try to change it a little bit over time. If this is indeed the epidemic that we see it is, and it should be treated in the way that we're treating other terrible epidemics in our our, uh, communities— does this require a hard-hitting you know, effort in which we just change medical policy and say you can't prescribe any more than so many of these things because we're worried about them getting out in the streets and people who take them legally getting addicted?
1: So we had the uh, White House Drug Policy Director come to New London um, a, a few weeks ago, uh, Michael Botticelli, who has been in this for 30 years, and – you know i think you know his command of the issue as as a recovering addict himself mm-hmm. i think is just you know totally um solid and his 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 attitude is it's an all hands on deck i mean this is a this is a complex problem you know that requires uh, again law enforcement prevention and education treatment uh, but also reform of uh you know how we treat pain as a society but i think the uh, you know Washington and Hartford sometimes can overreact in terms of dealings with issues and and I think we should listen uh, to to people who uh, you know really understand this uh with the with the urgency though that um you know we we can't keep going like we're we're going I mean as, as you point out the 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 CDC you know uh figures just really show that this this does require more than just a you know a, a blue ribbon commission that's going to report back um two years from now. And uh, and again, I think there's some really low-hanging fruit that's out there that we can deal with this. I mean, lastly, I would just say that, um, you know, the president's budget came out with $1.1 $1. $1 to deal with these sort of four uh, aspects of the issue. That's a 2017 budget. We're in the middle of, of you know, the House is on fire here in 2016.
0: And, and that's $1.1 $1. $1. $1 billion, billion with a B. That's for right. a whole country.
1: country. Correct. And um, uh, so... Uh, and, and again, that's assuming Congress passes a budget for 2017, which I think, you know, a lot of the handicappers are pretty skeptical of in the waning days of an administration. Uh, a lot of us would like to to move that up and have this treated, again, like a disaster declaration. Again, we're talking about a possible Zika virus uh, emergency uh, supplemental appropriation. Uh, we did it for Ebola. Uh, again, if you compare the the number of folks that have been, you know, Impacted by that versus this crisis. I mean, it, frankly, this crisis dwarfs um, those measures. Again, not yeah. to not to poo-poo those issues there, but uh, so I've, I have a bill in the House yeah. to, to provide for that emergency supplemental assistance, and um, and it was not made part of that Senate bill that I mentioned earlier. But the external pressure, I think, is going to continue to grow, and this does not affect just Democratic districts. I mean, this is this hits uh, rural America, suburban America, red America, as well as blue America.
0: Well, and we're talking with Joe. Courtney, second district congressman. We're talking about the heroin epidemic, the opioid epidemic across America that's hit hard in Connecticut and in his district. Um, we're going to talk about this for another couple of minutes before we break and talk about some of the other issues that are, that are facing him right now. Um, I, I guess I should say there, there's two things I wanted to get to. You mentioned law enforcement earlier and changes there. This is one thing that's really interesting. Of course, we're We're seemingly in this new mode that a lot of people have applauded. It's taken root here in Connecticut and everything from a second-chance society to a new way in which we we take a look at uh, low-level drug offenses like marijuana possession. Um, Cops these days are are looking at users differently. Um, But at the same time, as you said, they have to do a really good job of getting the dealers who are bringing stuff into the areas. Then at the same time, you need people who are out there using to feel confident that when they call local police because my friend is overdosing, that we're not going to get arrested, that we're going to get some help. So – from your seat as a, as a congressman, it's hard to say what exactly we can do. But how do you see these things coming together so that law enforcement has the tools and also the trust of the people, so that they'll start to getting the help that they need?
1: I mean, and that's really where we get to the resources issue, which I was just talking about. Because the fact of the matter is, is that um, you know, if you've got someone in lockup in Norwich or um, Torrington, and and you you know are trying to help them and 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 make them feel um, that they have trust. Uh, mm-hmm and you don't have a detox bed and you don't have any real prospect for a treatment bed, you know, you are really, um, it, it, it makes that very hard. And, and that's really where I think, um, the, the sort of shift in, in approach that a lot of the law enforcement has about the fact that they understand that these resources are, makes their job, uh, a, you know, more successful. And, and, um, as I said, that that's where I think the if you look at my bill, which has been endorsed by the International Brotherhood of Police Officers, as well as, you know, treatment advocates out there. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary coalition that did not exist, uh, you know, 20 years ago in terms of how, you know, drugs were, were, were uh, viewed as a, you know, as a, a public policy issue. Uh,
0: let's get to a couple of quick phone calls here. Uh, Sylvester is calling from Orange, Connecticut. Hello, Sylvester. You're on with Joe Courtney.
2: Yes. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning, uh, Congressman Courtney uh, Solveser from the Connecticut Heroin Users Union. Here, uh, Congressman Courtney, you and I sat together at a meeting that was held over there at the uh, hospital in New London about yep. a month ago. Yeah, remember? And yes. Uh, and uh, anyway, thank you for uh, being on the statewide program again. My question repeatedly is: I'm a veteran of the war on drugs as a naval intelligence officer, and the approach from a law enforcement Judicial branch uh, side, guess it's not working. I don't know. Uh, well, this is my proposal to you as, as somebody who's at the federal level. Why not carve out for your specific district a drug tolerant zone concept where we don't turn police officers into social workers, but just basically put this entire problem and crisis in the hands of public health officials strictly and uh, allow, let's say, the heroin users to be able to come out of the shadows and join something like the Connecticut Heroin Users Union without fear of prosecution and all the other complicated legal entanglements.
0: And Sylvester, thank you for that. I want to get Joe Courtney's uh, response. Well, I just
1: think, um, you know, the notion that carve-outs are something that, um, you know, that you can um, create uh, overnight or with the Drop of a hat is, um, in my opinion, not the, the the best approach in terms of trying to change public policy. I mean, the the good news is, and, and I respect um, you know the caller greatly. I mean, he was very um, eloquent when he spoke uh, to Director Botticelli. Is that um, the fact is, is that the ground is shifting in the direction that he's that he's describing, and in terms of uh, you know a, a change in in approach and attitude. Uh, by law enforcement, about how you how you deal with with folks who are arrested uh, such as this, uh, but the notion that i mean we 're struggling right now still to overcome the stigma of drug use in Washington to get this as as a public health measure in terms of emergency funding and and you know that is the, still the fundamental in my opinion. Um, obstacle towards really uh, moving the country forward is that there is still resistance out there about whether or not these are just, you know, bad people, weak people. They don't deserve to be you know, treated like folks, uh, you know, who, who need uh, medical uh, and, and public health uh, care. But we're we're making progress, partly because of uh, you know Sylvester's efforts, uh, but also because families are coming out uh, of the shadows and really talking about this. And and you know I'm actually an optimist. If you look at the sentencing reform effort that's happening in Washington, I mean that may be a real sleeper success uh, towards the end of the Obama administration. There's been meetings with some of the most staunch Republicans, Trey Gowdy, Mm -hmm. the uh, chairman of the Benghazi Commission, but a former U.S. attorney in South Carolina has been actively meeting with folks at the White House about change. The sentencing guidelines that, again, were the most sort of um, out of um, touch uh, mechanism for, um, you know, how to deal with this this problem. But, you know, we still that's still the law in this country. And to to get that to move, uh, you know, by itself is a huge sea change.
0: Let's get to one more quick phone call. Annette from Darien. Hello, Annette.
2: Hi. Hi. Go ahead. Um, Yeah, so I'm a stay-at-home mom in Darien, and three times in the last year, um, family members have had minor outpatient procedures and have been given prescriptions for oxycodone, and we've tried to refuse it, and they push it on us and say, you need it just in case, and we haven't gotten them filled, uh, or if we have, we don't use it, so now I have to dispose of it. And I just think it's completely unnecessary. It bothers me. I don't want it in my house. And, you know, my son just got one, and he's been fine on Motrin.
0: First of all, Annette, thank you for sharing that story. And we've heard this story. Our reporter, Patrick Scale has been doing a series of stories about this. People are over-prescribed this stuff. They don't know what to do with it afterward. There's not a comprehensive um, solution for how to dispose of it. Uh, Many people, including another caller I'm not going to have time to get to on this, um, is saying, look, why are doctors pushing this stuff? Does it have anything to do with drug companies that make this stuff? And I guess I'm wondering, from where you sit in Washington, this is something that's, that goes beyond the level of being able to tackle it in Darien or, or New London or anyplace else. And is there something that has to be done about the pharmaceutical industry pushing these painkillers over and over again when it's clear that a lot of people don't need as many as they're getting prescribed? So uh, there
1: was a, uh, an actual lawsuit brought by the attorney general from Kentucky against uh, Purdue Pharma. Uh, because of the marketing practices that they were using in terms of painkillers, and actually they uh, were successful in obtaining a huge judgment uh, against um, Purdue, and and so absolutely yes, that, I mean that's part of this sort of protocol change that needs to happen. There is that um, you know the the marketing and and incentives that are built into the system for overprescribing, which I think exists, I mean, I don't think anyone can deny that, um, has to be changed. And and that means maybe, you know, a a little bit more of a challenging political Obstacle, But, again, the story that we just heard um, is, you know, I've heard it as well. By the way, Walgreens has set up a, a drug disposal system voluntarily, and I give them credit uh, for doing that. But that law that I mentioned or the bill that I mentioned that came through the, the Senate, one of the, the pieces of it is about trying to create a national drug disposal system um, to, to get this stuff out of people's medicine cabinets. You,
0: you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the reasons it's uh, difficult politically to change anything having to do with the pharmaceutical industry is because we know the pharmaceutical industry gives so much money to members of Congress to run the reelection campaigns. I guess a lot of people wonder why it doesn't ever flow the other way, why and something like this, where Republicans and Democrats both see the issue and they both and they both take money from the pharmaceutical industry, why we can't have some sort of a reverse process in which the, enough of a critical mass of Congress says, you know what, guys, we're going to change. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars you've given us for our reelection campaigns. We're going to force you to do something now because we have the power here. We were elected. You weren't.
1: Well, again, the bill that passed the Senate was 94 to 1. And mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, it, 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 it's getting into their wheelhouse in terms of really, you know, having um, FDA and others get into the the question of uh, of of how this overprescribing is happening. So, um, you know, that does show that the power of this issue is is going to uh, force even vested interests like that to to have to yield. And and again, it's um, there's just no excuse for creating financial incentives for stuff that really has the same chemistry as, as heroin. Mm.
0: Joe Courtney is Connecticut's 2nd Congressional District Congressman. He's joining us today to answer some of your questions. We've been a long time talking about the heroin epidemic. Obviously, we'll be able to get to more of those issues as well. But we want to turn to submarines, of course, one of the biggest issues in his district. Good news for electric boat over the course of this last week. We'll find out what that might mean for jobs in his district. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live if you want to join us. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. Today our guest is Representative Joe Courtney. He represents Connecticut's 2nd Congressional District in Congress in Washington, but he's, he's back home in the district, joined us in our Hartford studios today. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. We're going to turn to some economic issues, including this announcement out of the 2nd District, the Navy announcing that Electric Boat would be the main contractor on a new fleet of submarines. Um, good news for the submarine building industry. What can you tell us about the details of this, Joe Courtney?
1: So the... Um uh, the fleet, which is called the Ohio Replacement Program, is uh, uh, 12 subs that um, are large. I mean, these are 600-foot-long submarines that are uh, going to be replacing the aging-out um, prior Ohio uh, fleet, which was built back in the 1980s. And the, um, if you want to sort of put it into the framework of the, the workload, um, I mean, today— uh, EB is uh, building the Virginia-class submarines, which are the attack subs that are about 300 feet long. The workload um, difference in terms of the Ohio versus the Virginia is about two and a half times. And um, we're, we're at a point right now where EB's workforce is roughly about 14,000 between the Connecticut um, f- facilities and Quonset Point. Uh, the uh, projection from the CEO of uh, Electric boat, Jeff Geiger, uh, about two or three weeks ago, is that the workforce is going to grow from fourteen thousand to eighteen thousand between now and and twenty twenty. Um, this this hiring um, is actually having now a real impact in terms of the uh, the Connecticut labor market. The Department of Labor uh, came out with their February uh, statistics uh, last week, actually, and um, and the the um, comment there was uh, that the uh, the smaller Norwich New London labor market, would, uh, is now suddenly leads in annual percentage gains, in other words, they added about thirty two hundred jobs last year and it was partly Tanger Mall, which is about nine hundred jobs mm-hmm. that is part of foxwoods and uh, and and shipbuilding and and these are jobs that um, you know are metal trades design engineering um, they 're the kind of jobs that people can actually build a future around. There was a hiring event at EB a week ago last Saturday. They had about um, 160 people there. They made 148 job offers on the spot and 95 people accepted. Um, I mean, this is a process that's going to continue um, to 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 happen. This is not a one-year blip. The, the production schedule for Ohio is going to go well into the 2020s. Did, does
0: this then – does this announcement – somewhat further inoculate um, your region from some of the worries that you've had about the submarine industry that have come over the years, whether or not uh, the sub-base is going to get closed by military commission, whether or not uh, Electric boat is going to move jobs elsewhere. Does this seem to you that this is not just good news for now, but maybe good news on the jobs front for quite some time to come? Yeah,
1: I mean, this is going to be a pillar in the region. And uh, by the way, there's about 500 suppliers in the state of Connecticut that feed into the program. Actually, John Larson's district has the largest um, dollar volume in terms of work that goes into, um, into Groton. And as I said, that's, it, this, because of the shipbuilding plan that the Navy has put out, uh, again, this is not a short-term um, impact. This is going to uh, be there for a long time. And if you, if you were down, uh, yesterday I was down with the Boilermakers um, in Groton and was talking to one of the more wizened uh, mm-hmm. guys that have been there, you know, through the downturn that took place. And he said, you know, it's just amazing how, you know, you're looking at a workforce now that is all young. And, um, you know, the, the challenge is is really whether or not we're going to have the workforce um, – we're going to meet the workforce demand over the next five or, or ten years. So um, the Eastern Connecticut Workforce Investment Board, which is the the vehicle that federal funds from the U.S. Department of Labor flows through, uh, they got a $6 million grant, which we our office helped them with. Uh, they are now starting uh, sheet metal classes, uh, electrician classes at the tech schools and at the community colleges – um, I, I'm very bullish myself. I think that, you know, the workforce is going to be there. But it's, um, you know, we're in a situation right now where there was virtually no apprenticeship programs for well over a decade. Um, you know, these programs in terms of advanced manufacturing had pretty much disappeared um, in the tech school environment, and now they are ramping up at, at full speed.
0: And so you feel like we, we are going to be getting the graduates that, that have the requisite skills. It's something we've heard a long, for a long time, and not just in this industry, but in a lot of technical industries, that Connecticut was just not turning out the graduates that we needed to stay here and take these jobs. You, you think it's turning a corner.
1: And that's the, the, the purpose of this grant, the manufacturing pipeline grant, uh, is to uh, again, just go into, we've got some great tech schools, you know, Grasso Tech and Wyndham Tech, and Ellis Tech. And um, I mean, that's where this this program is starting at the earliest uh, level, because they they want to really get people's mind frame into the the belief that this is really where um, job security is. And, um, you know, I I think they uh, have a full complement in terms of the first classes that they're enrolling. Uh, We checked with that. John Beauregard, who's the director, uh, down there yesterday. And, um, uh, I, you know, again, I think we're, we're going to do just fine in terms of meeting those workforce uh, demands.
0: And, again, if you have questions for Joe Courtney, 860 By the way, on the design side, yeah. Uh, yeah. the
1: University of Connecticut School of Engineering, yeah. uh, they they hired roughly about 100 kids out of the last year's graduating class. They would have hired more. Susan Herbst uh, actually, uh, for the first time, visited EB and had a great wow. um, stop there and met with uh, some of the interns from the School of Engineering uh, so these are kids who are getting educated here in Connecticut, and then they're going to stay in Connecticut, which I know is a, is a common refrain, which is that you know all our young people are, are heading, heading for the exits. You know These are these are jobs that um, are going to keep our kids here in, in the state, and in fact, they're going to bring in uh, young people from, from other parts of the country.
0: So this gets us into the, the part of the conversation that you and I always have. It's a fun conversation yeah. for me, but I think it's an important one, and it's actually highlighted a little bit by a conversation I, I had yesterday with, with Ralph Nader. I was visiting with him in, in his hometown of Winston. Dead. And um, it's something that obviously not just Ralph Nader saying, but we're hearing an awful lot on the campaign trail from both Republicans and Democrats, I might add, who are running for president. It's that the world um, is a dangerous place and, and we need to be safe from all the various dangers. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, not too many years ago, you and I may have had a conversation about whether or not a, a strong nuclear submarine fleet makes a, a ton of sense, before an emergent Russia and before North Korea is launching nukes into the sea. Uh, that all said, I think good arguments can be made for that. But earlier we, we talked about the president saying that there's a, essentially a national health emergency around heroin uh, abuse and, and opioid abuse, and we're putting $1.1 billion into it. I mean, how expensive is it to run a submarine fleet? And I guess you know, Ralph Nader's point, the point I'll, I'll ask you about is, are we tipping – once again, so much toward military spending in America that it keeps us from addressing an epidemic like opioids, addressing a crumbling infrastructure that we have, addressing a massive deficit in public transportation that clearly affects your district at least as much as job losses. How do we balance these two things, Joe Courtney? And how do we have a discussion about it that's really clear eyed when so many jobs are at stake? but but we clearly have these other needs and things to spend 1.1 billion dollars for an entire country to spend on on opioid addiction if it's a problem my goodness that's a couple days worth of building subs so the uh it's actually
1: not you know it takes a little more than that but anyway um the um so first of all the the, the question is you know I would argue when we talk about um, this decision to to build this this fleet and um, to recapitalize the Virginia-class program is really almost uh, do you want to have a Navy? Because really, if you look over time, I mean, at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. Navy consisted of 600 ships. Uh, today, we're down to 272. The Virginia-class program, which is what's, you know, the, the subs that are being built uh, today, and Michelle Obama came for the Illinois uh, at two a year, is really to mitigate a, a a continuing decline in the size of the attack subs that that are part of uh, America's fleet they're down to about 54 they were 100 at the end of the cold war they're going to continue to to dip down into the the 40s uh, through the the 2020s, and you know, as you point out, um, you know, the world has kind of surprised uh, you know intelligence analysts, uh, military planners. Uh, you know, Putin is recapitalizing his navy. That uh, you know, Admiral Stavridis, who's the dean of the Fletcher School up in at Tufts, where I um, graduated from, testified uh, not too long ago, who who basically estimates that the the submarine activity. Uh, by the Russian Navy is about 70 to 80 percent of what it was in the Cold War. China's militarizing the South China Sea in, in a way that it's totally flagrantly violating international law. And when you listen to the folks who are in charge of these regions, whether it's Admiral Harris, who's in charge of Pacific Command, or General Breedlove, who's in charge of the European Command, they are both, um, and they testified in successive days before the Armed Services Committee, that they need more submarines. And I mean, that is the the one part of the chessboard that, um, you know, they they identified as where we have a, a critical need. And... You know the top line of military spending. Just to address Ralph's concern, you know, is not skyrocketing upward. I mean, not every part of uh, the shipbuilding plan, not every part of the overall pie chart for for the Pentagon is growing the way that the investment it doesn't have in, to grow
0: very much to be an enormous amount of the expenditure of the, of the American but I, government. But as,
1: as a percentage of GDP, I yeah. mean, we, we're below four percent in terms of military spending. You know, when Dwight Eisenhower made his famous remarks about the military-industrial complex, I mean, it was between five and ten percent. GDP during the 1950s and early 1960s. We just come out of a
0: war. I mean, it was a different time. but,
1: But, you know, still going into the 60s, it was about double really where we are today right now. So, you know, I guess, you know, from from my standpoint, historically, as far as where the 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 defense budget is versus um, non-defense, it is still a a smaller percentage than it was in past years when we did build highways and we did, I think, invest in education. And so I I think that, um, you know, this is not mission impossible in terms of trying to balance these competing needs. And and we need a
0: Navy. I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, we need a Navy. Well, yeah. And I guess part of it is when you think about the ways in which Congress is unable to work together. Yeah. um, Making sure that we have money for defense spending is something that people can work on across the aisle. There's many, many congressmen like you, Democrats, right. in in districts that have heavy military concentrations in which you really need to make sure that these things happen, not just for jobs because, as you said, you, you believe in a strong Navy. But, again, we seem to always be able to make the handshake on how we can fund the military, which is why, if nothing else, it stays flat at this enormous amount of the GDP compared to our ability to react quickly to change drug policy, to do something about infrastructure, we can't seem to ever shake hands on that stuff. And that's the stuff that's like killing people on a daily so, basis. So,
1: I mean, if you go back to last December, we, we did pass the Bipartisan Budget Act, which did lift sequestration caps for both defense and non-defense. And as a result, we actually got a halfway intelligent um, no Child Left Behind rewrite that boosted funding for Title I, which helps needy school districts. We did pass a surface transportation bill, a five-year surface transportation bill, which for Connecticut means about a ten percent increase in federal dollars coming in for roads and bridges. And, we can and, find
0: our own money to match
1: it. No, and and, and that's you know I, I'm not, I'm in enough bar fights. I just so, okay. So the um, um, but I mean and I mean that's obviously the challenge of the day. But there there really was a brief burst of um, of, of uh, working together on domestic priorities as well as defense, but in many respects, this is what's on the ballot um, for the fall. But I, I really think to, for folks to sort of you know highlight this as a as a you know um, you know a fight between defense and non-defense, you know really I think misses the point in terms of where I think the real uh, you know issue is, and, and that's really about. Uh, you know, the burden of of tax policy and and the shift that took place with the Bush tax cuts, which we have still not recovered from. And I frankly think both candidates running on the Democratic side get that and and I think would allow this country to address its priorities in a balanced way, unlike the other side.
0: Uh, We're talking with Joe Courtney. We're going to take a break. There's a lot more to talk about. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday show, we're actually going to be presenting a special from Intelligence Squared. Um, Protests have broken out on college campuses across the country in response to what they see as racist and sexist environments. Critics of these protesters say the demands have resulted in the loss of academic freedom. We're going to broadcast this debate from Intelligence Square that happened at Yale University. That's Monday's where we live. I hope you can join us. Today we're talking with Representative Joe Courtney, who represents the 2nd Congressional District. We've been talking about opioids and we've been talking about submarines. There's a lot more to talk about. Quickly, I want to ask you, you know, it's almost a caricature of the 2nd District that there's so many jobs tied up in the casinos and and submarines. We know that's not entirely true, but it is fair to say those are two very big industries. You said we added a lot of jobs in the 2nd District because of the new Tanger Mall at Foxwoods. What do you make of Connecticut's push to get a third tribal casino, one that would be located somewhere between Hartford and Springfield, to try to keep people from going to this new MGM casino? What do you make of that, and, and how do you think it would impact what's happening in your district?
1: So, I mean, obviously, uh, for twenty plus years, <clears throat> the casinos in Connecticut kind of operated in a in a monopoly situation, and um, you know that time has come to an end. And so, I think the um, the the leadership of both tribes is are you know being much more sort of strategic and tactical in terms of how uh, they preserve market share. and and, and um, you know, this obviously is uh, you know an initiative that they're pushing with the the state legislature I um, you know mentioned Tanger earlier because I actually think that you know at the end of the day um, the best way to, to really solidify their position is to really uh, improve both casinos as uh, destination spots for a broader range of uh, visitors than just folks who uh, want to gamble, and I think if you look at Las Vegas, you know that's really been the secret of the success out there is that they've made it more of a family sort of destination for many of the the, the sites that are out there, and uh, and so Tanger is sort of part of that trend in terms of trying to make it now a shopping experience. Um, I think that if you look at a lot of the the you know the the entertainment acts that are coming in, um, you know they're they're really top shelf that are um, now. Performing there, and I think, um, you know, to me, I, I never, I don't think we're Atlantic City. I don't think southeastern Connecticut is going to be Atlantic City. They're not going to close, or, uh, you know. But they clearly, it's a new world, and that's why I think that, um, you know, job loss that really came on top of the recession, you know, hit um, New London County so hard is that um, th- that adjustment is is happening there. But I, I do think that it's stabilized in terms of uh, you know where the the workforce is right now. But th- that at the end of the day. Um, you know, the notion that you can just sort of, um, you know, sit back and wait for the the crowds to come in because they had no place else to go—that th- those days are over, and they've got to give other people other reasons to come.
0: So, so do, do you support the idea of building this other casino that seemingly would would drain a little bit of of business from the southeastern Connecticut casinos? They wouldn't necessarily be investing in making them these destinations. I mean, do you think it's a it's a decent idea? Do you think it's a bad idea?
1: You know, I think. Um, it's a, it's an idea that deserves, um, the, the really smartest analysis because, um, you know, when you make a commitment, uh, for facilities like this, I mean, it has an impact in, in terms of the, the host towns and, um, and, and so, and, and they don't, it's not something you can kind of turn the light on and off quickly. So I, I, um, I get it. What's, what the, what the thinking is behind it. And I, I, um, uh, think that clearly. It's it's an attempt to try and stop um, the folks up in Springfield from sort of siphoning off uh, people in Connecticut. But I, I think it, it's clearly a decision that the the legislature and the governor are going to have to really think through uh, long and hard in terms of you know where is the right place and and really what is the the scope of it.
0: Um, one of the things that, that came up this week, of course, the International Nuclear Summit happening uh, in the wake of the Brussels attack. There's been a lot of um, worries about nuclear security, not necessarily about somebody being able to launch nuclear weaponry like the ones on on the submarines down there, but the threats of dirty bombs, people getting their hands on this sort of material. What can you tell us about the security in your district of some of the nuclear facilities, which include a, a power plant and a whole bunch of uh, nuclear submarines?
1: So, again, we don't store uh, warheads uh, in in Connecticut, um, again, these are uh, vessels that are built and operated um, with nuclear power plants and relatively small ones. Uh, if you're looking at a, a Virginia-class uh, submarine, the the Ohio, when it does come online, will be uh, somewhat bigger. I, what I would just say is that, you know, Electric Boat is a nuclear—there's cer- only two nuclear-certified shipyards in America, uh, EB in, in Groton and Newport News, Huntington Ingalls. And um, they have operated since the days of uh, Hyman Rickover in the 1950s. They have never had, um, you know, a problem or an incident because uh, you can't get in and out of there. And I think you know that, John. I mean, that is not a place that you can just sort of walk in off the street. Uh, You can't even take pictures uh, out there. So I I think the, um, you know, the the security system they have there is incredibly solid. And then within the yard, I mean, that piece of it um, in terms of the propulsion plant is even more uh, you know, uh, off limits and, and, and highly protected. Millstone, uh, again, after 9-11, uh, the world completely changed there. Uh, I've been there a number of times. Uh, getting into the property is extremely arduous. Um, and, I mean, they know me down there, but I've got to jump through the hoops. And, and, frankly, I have no problem with that. I, I I'm glad they do it. And the, the the dry cast storage that they have there, I mean, if anyone tried to somehow, um, you know, take dirty material off the, the site there, I mean, good luck. I mean, because you would need a crane and, a, you, know, um, you know, heavy equipment to, to, to even, you know, attempt the, to think about it. And, um, you know, the, the other site is Connecticut Yankee uh, in East Tatum. If anyone ever drives into that area there, I mean, there is a mini uh, security force with with fairly heavy weapons that that guard that facility. I mean, frankly, it's time to get that stuff out of here, and I'm a co-sponsor of a bill in the House to at least set up an interim storage site um, that uh, is going to have to, you know, be there for some time before we come up with some solution to Yucca Mountain. But, um, you know, this is a a problem that the country really has to to get its hands around, And, and... you know, it just seems like every administration doesn't want to touch uh, I was Nevada say, politics. And, of, and, of, the uh, things,
0: yeah. of the things that we think might get done in yeah. Congress during the time that you're in Congress and I'm doing radio shows, I'm not necessarily sure we solved that one. Well, but, the,
1: the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the senator from Nevada is retiring as the head of the Senate, I, so there I, may I, be a window there. I, I have to ask you, we just yeah.
0: have a couple minutes yeah. left. Last year you voted for a bill to tighten the screening process yep. for refugees coming from Syria and Iraq. If a similar bill came up in the House today, would you still support tightening these screening processes?
1: So I, I think, that, you know, clearly Homeland Security has responded to that vote in terms of, um, uh, you know, really uh, enhancing the system that's in place, which, by the way, is pretty robust right now as well. And our office has helped families from Syria, uh, you know, jump through those those hoops. But, you know, clearly, you know, issues like social media searches is now, you know, part of the new reality um, in the wake of San Bernardino. So if the, if the language came up precisely the way it is right now, I would not. Uh, having said that i I think that you know no system is sacrosanct in terms of uh being um you know improved and and so I think um you know at the end of the day it 's important for public confidence to to be there for this program because if if people feel like it doesn 't work or it's it 's not safe then that 's when you 're going to have this huge overreaction with the you know the crazy ideas like um Donald Trump about just banning uh people from one of the world's largest religions uh, entirely from coming into the country.
0: Well, since you mentioned Donald Trump, I'll just spend spend the last moment or two with you on this presidential race. Uh, You've come out in support of Hillary Clinton for for president. Clearly, though, there are an awful lot of people in your district and all across America who said, you know, look. Bernie Sanders is offering an alternative to Democrats. He's really talking about one or two very, very key issues, and it really has to do with changing the way that we uh, deal with Wall Street, changing the way we deal with big corporations. Um, I guess I'll just ask you, how much of that message is resonating with you and the people that you're talking to, even as a Hillary Clinton supporter? Is there something that Bernie Sanders has tapped into that you believe your party needs to listen to?
1: Absolutely. I mean, as you recall, I was the only one to vote against the uh, bank bailout uh, from the state, and, um, and I think that um, that event still burns, you know, very deeply for many, many people, not just in the 2nd District, but but across the country. And I think he, he has uh, definitely tapped into that with his, um, you know, campaign's uh, positions on it. I also think that, uh, you know, his advocacy um, to stop these trade deals that really have, uh, I think, hemorrhaged uh, a lot of good jobs out of the country and her shift – on TPP has been extremely healthy um, for uh, the party as it uh, moves towards uh, the, the November uh, election. So, you know, I there I think if you look at my voting record in terms of some of the issues that he's talking about, I, I'm probably in some ways more closely aligned to him on issues of of Wall Street and and trade deals. Uh, I. I I think his vote on immigration reform was a huge mistake um, in 2007, and um, and that's obviously part of the the you know the decision-making process that Democrats are going to have to make between now and the Philadelphia Convention.
0: Do you think that Hillary Clinton is hearing these messages, though? I understand that what she's talking about on the campaign trail has certainly changed, but you've known the Clintons for a long time. I mean, yeah. do you think this is actually soaking in that she is taking to heart some of the things, those issues that Bernie Sanders has raised, the ones so that you've been working one, on for years? One
1: example is uh, also the Cadillac tax, which, uh, as you know, uh, was a part of the Affordable Care Act that I opposed from day one and worked with Bernie, actually, to strip from the law, and we pushed it out to 2020. Uh, before I made my endorsement of, of Secretary Clinton, I mean, we, we, I had personal conversations with the campaign about the need for her to come out uh, and, and support that position. And she did. And, and again, Bernie, to his credit, um, you know, created, I think, a lot of the incentive to do that. But I do think that that's a, a sincere change of heart that she
0: made. Joe Courtney represents Connecticut's second co- congressional district. It's always good to see you, Congressman. Thanks so much for being Thanks, here. Thanks, John. If you want to continue this conversation, do it online at WNPR.org/slash where we live. Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown produce our show with Kion Wolf, our technical producer. Heather Brandon, our digital editor, Katie Tularski, our executive producer, Ben Esty, and Alex Ingber are our interns. Continue this conversation again at WNPR.org. Thanks to the cameras of CTN, the Connecticut Network. I'm John Dankowski. This is where we live.